Hi, you're listening to Manufactured, a podcast about sustainability and the making of fashion. I'm your host, Kim von der Weert, a student of human rights, turned garment factory manager, turned sustainable fashion critic. On this show, I talk to some of the most integral people who manufacture what we wear. They aren't the people you see in fashion magazines. They're the people behind closed doors working in fashion supply chains. This episode is part of a mini-series that explains how different fabrics are made. We're going back to basics and asking industry insiders questions like, what are the production processes behind different fabrics? Who are the players involved? What are their incentives? And more. Because it's hard to have a conversation about how to make a material better or how to make a garment better if we don't understand how it's made in the first place. This week, we explore man-made cellulosic fiber, a type of material that we actually have all around us but know very little about. To take us through how it's made, I'm joined by Dr. Krishna Manda, a sustainability executive with 15 years of experience who is currently Vice President and Global Head of Sustainability at Lensing. Lensing is a specialty cellulose fiber producer, headquartered in Austria. He takes us through the stages of production, from sourcing raw materials like wood, to processing, to finally ending up with a fiber that can be spun into yarn. You don't see man-made cellulosic fiber ever listed on a sewn-in label in a garment. But what are the sort of more familiar names people might not realize are different types of man-made cellulosic fiber? First of all, thanks for having this conversation with me. Um, it's a pleasure to be with you. Usually, as you say, on the labels of the garments, they don't say man-made cellulosics, but they use the terms like viscose, modal, and lyocell, and the cupro, and cellulosic state, because these are the types of man-made cellulosic fibers, which are also called regenerated cellulose fibers. And in the U.S., they usually call it rayon. So under rayon, everything comes for many people. And can you give a sense of what's the scale we're talking here relative to other fabrics? Yeah, basically, I mean, in 2021, it was around 110 million tons of uh, fibers being used globally. And if you look at the share, um, around 66% of these fibers coming from synthetics, like polyester, nylon, and those, and around 23% come from cotton, and a, a small 6% comes from cellulosic fibers. And the remaining 5% are other natural fibers like wool and those kind of things. Okay, so let's start at the beginning. Well, there's different beginnings, right? It depends on where you are. But <laughs> let's start at a beginning. Let's start with the plants. What types of plants can be used for, to make cellulosic fibers? I mean, cellulose is actually most abundant material in the nature. So uh, in principle, cellulose is everywhere. The leaves and the plants and everything. However, for making the viscose and those kind of fibers, so we are predominantly using, in the case of lensing beech, spruce, and eucalyptus. I mean, there are other trees like pine, birch, ash, maple, those kind of species also can be used. And there are also other alternative sources as well, right? So um, some people are talking about hemp and some people are talking about um, orange waste pulp and, and those. I want to zoom out for a second. 
I mean, people who are in the industry, this probably doesn't sound that strange, but for people who aren't in the industry, conceptually, it's a strange idea, right? To think about like to go from a tree or even bamboo or hemp or, you know, with cotton, people can kind of imagine it, right? Like you can imagine a cotton ball and you can be like, you can sort of imagine that this could be spun and then knitted or woven or whatever, but it's hard to imagine starting with like a tree or a piece of bamboo and that that becomes a soft fabric, right? I want to talk about like why lensing, why you guys focus on the types of wood that you do. But I'm also curious if you could just describe like what exactly are you sourcing? Can you describe, are you getting trees? Are you getting wood chips? What does it look like? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, uh, it's a great question. Why are we actually using wood? Um, Just before going into that, I just wanted to tell you that we're also working on recycled cotton textiles, whether it's post-consumer or pre-consumer. We started with pre-consumer waste. So we are also looking into cotton textile waste. I just wanted to emphasize that. By the way, in the case of um, lensing wood resources, It's like basically we buy logs of wood. So we do get, but how do we get is actually a phenomenon called felling. So if you look at the wood industry or the total wood output in the the whole world, only 1% is being used for cellulosic industry. Remaining 99% is used for other industries. So we are getting the wood, which is... If you wanted to let the forest grow better, you need to actually cut away some trees. So we do get most of those trees as fellings, we call. And yeah, we also buy actually pulp from others. And and those uh, also come in bales, like sheets of pulp. So we also buy those. So we do both ourselves buy the wood and make it into pulp. But also we buy pulp from uh, external uh, pulp suppliers. And what does pulp mean? So let's say when you have a tree uh, log or trunk, I mean, the tree is made up of basically the bark, right, on the on the top as a covering and, and the protection to the tree. And then you have the, the tree inside uh, part. And then if you look at the components, you can basically say that uh, the tree consists of 40% cellulose. And you can make some wood-based chemicals like uh, xylene, which is a wood sugar, and other chemicals also coming out of the tree. But the remaining is actually kind of black liquor, which can be burned into make energy. So if you divide the tree into the components, 40% is cellulose and 10% is other bio-based chemicals and 50% can be used for energy. That is the way we are actually operating our pulp plants, which are called biorefineries. So the pulp is nothing but the cellulose that is coming out of this process. Oh, this is fascinating. And the pulp, just like for my imagination, then does it look like, like I imagine something that looks like mush. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah. It can be flakes as well. So pulp, um, yeah, you can imagine something like that. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So you mentioned already a few different types of wood and you started to explain why wood in the first place. Could you elaborate on that? I think if you look at basically few aspects come into my mind, like availability of feedstock. For example, you need to have raw material in certain quantity and quality. 
and wood has been used as a source for power from the invention of paper making right the bibles have been also written on the paper right yeah to propagate it and those so you can go back for i mean at least more than a century i don't know exactly what time but wood has been used for making pulp for a long time because of the seasonal variation and the bulky difficult to storage and i mean if you look at other feedstocks like uh, ever growing plants like annual plants you have these seasonal variation and then they are also not dense enough so when you wanted to store them it's difficult but wood is so densely packed and everything is in the in the trunk and you know the bark usually has all the chemicals and other things being kind of concentrated there so you can easily remove those parts and then process the wood easily so if you go for bamboo and other kind of grasses and and straws and those kind of things the problem would be that the processing of them to make the pulp uh, or the cellulose requires a lot of steps because you need to um separate many other chemical components coming out of the plants so in the case of wood it is all concentrated in the bark and you can just remove the bark and make it for using energy but in the case of other perennial plants everything is actually mixed up in the cellulose material and then you need to purify it you need to use lot of water chemicals energy and so it's not actually sustainable if you don't have a lot of renewable energy available in the case of wood also you can have as i said like 40% is cellulose and 50% can be used for making bio-based energy which can run the plants so all these advantages exist with the wood and then it's like even if there are any droughts or floods the forest can actually stick for a few years because you need at least a few decades to harvest forest right yeah. so they are not actually impacted by the seasonal variations and those kind of things like cotton being affected by a drought or a flood and usually the forest though they are also affected in terms of growth but you still have it so there is a continuity of supply possible and at least in europe i think the forest have been maintained for at least few centuries in a sustainable manner so you have those practices also kind of embedded in the culture of um, central europe and the northern europe and those of the uh, the countries so we are actually procuring mostly from these areas where sustainable forestry is possible and there is logistics to the forest but imagine if you wanted to just use straw as i said it's less dense that means it's bulky and where do you store it mm. and because you are only getting in different seasons then you won't get it throughout the year and so all these issues and apart from the chemicals and the kind of minerals in the in those which you need to remove them to make this pure cellulose which can be going into you making your products so all these things are actually challenges but when you use textile waste i think that is actually less so but still we need to figure out how can we use textile waste because you know textile waste also comes with a lot of uh, blending with other fibers right uh, or even chemicals being used for dyeing and finishing and all those things you need to again purify again it costs you energy and chemicals and water so if we design our clothing in such a way then actually we can get it as a cellulose source a design for circularity can help us i see so it sounds like that's the vision for the future. Yeah, we are already working on it. You're that. already yeah. Yeah. Actually, you've mentioned where you're sourcing wood from and why you're sourcing wood from these places, but 
maybe there's a lot of variety, I don't know, but from what kinds of businesses are these that you would be buying either logs from or pulp from? Like, are these companies that are selling exclusively into the textile industry or also other sectors? Are they only growing wood? Mm-hmm. I mean, actually, as I said, like cellulose industry use only 1% of the total wood grown. Yeah, so only 1% we are talking about. So you can imagine the same way the farmers or the, or the forest owners may be selling it to different types of industries, whether it's furniture, construction, pulp and paper, and even actually the one of the most used is for energy. So like uh, pellets and those kind of things are also being coming from the same forest. So forests have multiple uh, material and energy needs they are catering to. So basically you can think about forests, which are large scale forests managed by either the national governments and the European countries, and also in America as well, North America. And there are also forest owners. We are talking about thousands of them, not just, I mean, if you ask me lensing, we buy from a few thousands of these forest owners and suppliers. There are some which are very, very big, like some decades ago, some rich people have actually given to the church. So the monasteries also having hundreds of hectares. So they're also our suppliers. We also buy from those. So you can think about the national forests of a country and the big forest owners, whether they are like um, rich people from the past having thousands of hectares, are also the institutional owners like monasteries, churches and those. But also small forest owners, some have maybe a few hundred acres and some have only tens of acres. So you can see the variety of uh, different people having these. Yeah, fascinating. And, and also there are plantations like eucalyptus, uh, which is also kind of managed by companies for commercial uh, wood needs. So they are also growing them for uh, some decades in some parts of the world. So you can also expect their uh, big forest owners, either owned by the company or a forest owner themselves. So, yeah. And so is a company like Lensing buying directly from the types of entities that you just mentioned? Or how does it work? Like how do buyer and seller find each other in this? Because it sounds like it's an incredibly diverse group of entities, companies, people, individuals. (laughs) Yeah. So in the case of uh, Europe, we directly work with, I think, most of the big forest owners like the Austrian National Forests. For example, so because Austria, Czech Republic, Germany, Slovakia, Slovenia, these are the places where we procure from. There are also private owners there we also work with, but within these countries. So we also have smallholder farms that we work with. So, yeah. So again, the same mix of things coming from these countries and also in pulp that we buy also coming from eucalyptus plantations in other countries that are being managed by the companies themselves. I'm just curious, besides the wood, what are the other critical raw materials that involved in this process? And what's the biggest challenge from a sourcing perspective? Yeah, I think uh, just before going into other things, like wood is the primary raw material for cellulose industry. However, many people also have conceptions about bamboo being a good alternative. I mean, bamboo, I like bamboo. Right. I mean, I also have some products uh, like somebody gave me a, a toothbrush made of bamboo. So if you don't actually chemically process it, I think for making baskets and those kind of things, the mechanical processing of bamboo to make things, I think it's a great material. But if you wanted to make pure pulp out of it, bamboo contains a lot of silica mineral. 
And if you wanted to purify the bamboo to take away this mineral, you need to use a lot of energy, chemicals, and those. At the end, you will produce also waste out of that process. Where do you dispose that waste, right? Yeah. So many people are not aware, thinking about bamboo is a natural material which is growing very nicely. It is true, but if you use for right uh, reasons, so I wouldn't be a big fan of using bamboo for cellulosic fibers because of these disadvantages it has. Other than wood, we talked about cellulose uh, textile waste, right? Uh, cotton and yep. those kind of uh, yep. garments waste and, and pre-consumer and post-consumer waste. Last year, we released a, a fiber made of 20% hemp and, and 80% wood pulp with our partner, Kandiani. Oh, we've actually featured Kandiani on the show before, back in episodes 16 and 17. I think in October 2020, when we talked to... Um... Danielle Arzaga about Kandiani's history and why they're still producing it in Italy and their work in regenerative cotton sourcing. So how did they use this fiber? They have launched a hemp collection of uh, genes, but it's actually first of its kind. And uh, it's only a few tons of pulp we had made available. So it has potential but we need to look into details about how much supply it is possible and what is the environmental impact of these things. Because with wood pulp, we have done all those things. Uh, even for the recycled fibers also we are doing. But when we wanted to use other alternative fibers or materials, we also need to look into the holistic nature of sustainability assessments with the life cycle assessment and understand what is the total environmental impact and benefit. Yeah. yeah. Basically... There is a potential, but we need to do systematic analysis and thinking to understand uh, what benefits and uh, disadvantages they might have, and then uh, need to arrange the value chain in such a way. So apart from the wood or the cellulose material input, but we also need a lot of chemicals in making it. Uh, in the case of um, viscose, you need sulfuric acid, caustic soda, and, and uh, CS2, and these are the carbon disulfide, and, and those kind of materials also you need. And these are also global commodity chemicals that we buy from the market in Europe or, or also in Asia, wherever we operate. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there is a lot of uh, wood and, and some chemicals coming into it. Are there any challenges from a sourcing perspective that you want to talk about that you haven't already? I mean, in the sense sourcing, the most important thing for us is to make sure that the wood we buy comes from non-critical sources with sustainable forests and plantations, right? So uh, we ensure all the wood we use, it's basically 100% certified or controlled sources from FSC and PFC kind of certifications because there is a lot of risk that ancient and endangered forests yeah. can get into it despite only 1% of the wood uh, use is coming to this industry, but it could also cause those kind of uh, large-scale impacts in other parts of the world, in tropicals especially, uh, which yeah. is happening. So, yeah, that is the most important. And the second is to, like, these are all smallholder farms. Sometimes you cannot actually implement so many certifications and schemes. So how do we ensure large-scale sustainability of these uh, areas? Like, if you wanted to go into traceability and those kind of things, which is a big challenge now, also, despite we know the region where we get it, but if you ask, point out to a farm, which is very difficult because you are transporting in bulk and you don't know which pulp bale is coming from at the end of the day, which forest. It's from that region we know. Because it gets consolidated. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So 
Okay, sorry, I just want to clarify then, because you have these small holders and they're selling to say some kind of middle person who's consolidating, who's then like, is that usually how it works? Or in some cases, would you ever buy direct from farmers or how does that? Yeah, yeah it, it happens in both ways. Okay. Yeah, it happens in both ways. But you know, when you go to a forest, there are separate locations where the, the wood is being stored, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe the forest is in that storage place, maybe three forest owners are actually storing their wood. I mean, once you get it in that place uh, that is being transported to the the trains or trucks or whatever it is. So once they are actually going into these uh, trains and trucks, they are being mixed, right? You can't separate them. Yeah. They all would, right? They look the same. It's right, just, right. Uh, like they don't have a barcode on them, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. See, one other thing is that if you look at the scope one, two, three emissions from the climate change point of view, actually a huge chunk of impacts are also coming from uh, the chemicals that we source for making cellulose fibers, at least more than 50% of the, the impacts, especially for CO2. So the other challenge the industry has is to ensure that the chemicals that we buy are actually becoming more and more low carbon CO2 footprint. Yeah. So I think this is the biggest challenge because, you know, most of the times you even don't have the baseline data of uh, these chemicals because they're commodities and, and made by hundreds of suppliers. And yeah. how do you get the primary data? Without that data, you cannot actually improve also the footprint of the final products you make, right? Yeah. So it's actually a chain. And, and everything adds up at the end of the day when you buy a garment. So this is one of the other challenges we face for supply chain. And also ensuring the supply chain is not having any environmental and social risks, like the regulations like EU due diligence is expecting that the companies need to ensure the human rights and um, labor rights and environmental topics are actually being taken care in the whole value chain especially is also very challenging yeah. in the current way we are operating. So I think these things need to be improved in the next uh, few years. We don't have too much time actually to waste. Okay, let's talk about processing. How do you go from wood, something that's hard, something that's fibrous, something which you know, presumably has a lot of different variety in terms of appearance into something that's sort of soft and white and presumably white, I'm guessing there, fluffy, something that can be spun into a yarn. How does that work? And is that process always the same or are there differences based on the type of input or maybe even the type of finished product that it will be used for? Yeah, I mean, basically the process is the same. You take wood and you chop it into small chips and then you crush it and then you cook it with um, some chemicals and then you actually after cooking, you separate the cellulose and other fractions like bio-based chemicals and, and black liquor and energy. And then you purify that and then make pulp out of it, right? So that's the way the pulp process works. So once you have the pulp, if you have an integrated pulp and fiber facility like Linsing we have in Austria, then you directly pump the pulp along with the water and then you put into the cellulose fiber making that is viscose, for example, making process. And then you actually mix this pulp with uh, chemicals like uh, sodium hydroxide. And then you give some time with time and temperature, the, the mixture gets aged and the cellulose chains started to break a little bit. 
And then this liquid is actually being mixed with another chemical called uh, carbon disulfide. And then you make an orange liquid. I mean, that orange liquid is, yeah, it looks like orange. Yeah, exactly. I mean, maybe when you look in the process, it feels like it. However, this is also a viscous fluid. So it's a lot of viscosity. So it's called viscose because of that viscosity, actually. Oh. And then actually you press that liquid through kind of uh, when we take shower, there is the shower heads with a lot of uh, holes that are uh, giving you us water, right? Mm -hmm. The same type of shower jets are there. And through that shower jets, you push this liquid. And then it is actually, in the case of viscose, it is actually happening in water or maybe you can say spin bath with uh, sulfuric acid and and, um, then first it was mixed with sodium hydroxide that is actually an alkaline solution which is a base and then when you are actually putting it into sulfuric acid since it's acid the base and acid makes it precipitate so and then the fibers precipitate through that process like it's a huge long noodle you can imagine like a noodle right okay so long noodles coming out of it and those long noodles are actually being washed and if you wanted to bleach it you can also bleach it and then you cut it into smaller lots and then you pack them one other thing is that you know this is a fiber that means it's around 4.5 5.2 centimeters long right okay so this fiber needs to be Pun into yarn in a spinning factory, right? Spinning mill. So you also need to sometimes kind of apply some treatments so that when you are spinning, it is actually going to be an efficient process. So basically, we apply these finishes to make the yarn spinning work smoothly, like a lubricant and all those. So I just explained you the basic process of, right? And all these chemicals are being recovered. Mm-hmm and then reused in the process. But for that, also, you need to have a lot of equipment and you need to have state-of-the-art facilities. That's what we do in lensing. So like the chemicals like carbon disulfide is actually recovered back as strong ones and weak ones to make, again, the CS2, but also the sulfuric acid also recovered in the process. And then you can put them back into the process. So this is all requiring equipment at high efficiency level so that you have less environmental pollution out of these chemicals, So, which is very important. If you're using for textiles or, or non-wovens in a bigger picture, like for wipes and those, you have different properties of these final products and applications, right? So basically you need to tune the process to give you those kind of fiber properties. So for example, you are using it for ring spinning or air jet spinning. You also need to make the properties of the fiber fit to those value chain steps. So there are some kind of adjustments and modifications are done in the process. And also, if you're using different types of pulps from different uh, species, also you need to adjust the process. So there are some variations many people don't realize, uh, but you can also make um, dope dyed fibers. That Mm -hmm. means you don't need to do conventional dyeing. You can also mix the color in the dope, the solution before you press it through the spinnerets or, or the shower jets. You can also mix it just before that, a pigment, and then you can get the colored fibers so you can avoid completely dyeing. So you don't need any conventional dyeing, which is needing a lot of chemicals and a, a 
energy, you can avoid that by around 99% actually, because everything is incorporated in the dope dyeing process. That's so interesting. We've actually spoken about dope dyeing on another episode in this mini-series on polyester with Sharon Chen of Baichuan. And I highly recommend going to check it out if anyone wants more information about dope dyeing. Yeah, so... There are many other variations depending on what you want to get out of it, but the basic scheme of the process steps are same. And when you say there are variations, you mean depending on both the, let's say, the input, like the type of wood or type of fiber that you're working with, but also depending on the type of yarn that it's going to be turned into. Yes, the application. Yeah, yes, exactly what I mean that. Yeah. So different applications will need different types of yarn properties. So we are actually, people only know. So viscose modal and lyocell, but we also have micromodal, micro lyocell, and those kind of things, which are even further finer properties, which can give you, I think the, one of the, the biggest advantage of these fibers is actually smoothness, a silky feel and softness and, and those kind of things. So you can uh, kind of modify those properties as well by modifying the process as such. And you also mentioned the raw materials, right? You know, there are different types of woods. One is called soft woods and the other one is called hard woods. I also don't know why they are called as soft and hard. <laughs> <laughs> so they are called that way. And the densities of the wood is totally different from species to species. So one weighs in a cubic meter like 350 kilograms and the other weighs maybe 600 kilograms, the same cubic meter, right? Wow, yeah. So depending on that, you need to design the process and the reactors like the cooking and vessels and those. So you cannot actually change. For example, our Czech facility is actually made for spruce as a species of wood. Mm -hmm. And you cannot actually change completely from spruce to something else. You might have a smaller fraction of other woods, but you cannot completely change it. So these are all highly specified, technically mature processes. Because it's a different type of machine or like... Yeah, it's not the machines as such. As you said, the density of the wood, like one is 350, the other one is 600, right? But it's still wood and the amount of moisture in the wood and also the kind of chemicals that are, I mean, are the metals coming out of the wood because it's also like you, many people don't know that there are metals also in the wood, very minor fractions, but you need to remove all of those. So all these things require you adapt the process to support that processing. So yeah, there are a lot of variations that are needed and possible depending on the application, depending on the inputs and all those things. Right. Which just makes my head start to spin from a sustainability perspective, yeah. because it's just like, yeah, every variation will have its own sustainability recipe too then, so to speak. Right. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. You've talked about variations in terms of process. I want to just paint a picture of like the facility. You know, are these processes happening in one place, usually in different places? Um, is lensing doing all of the processes that you just described? Is that common? Is that not common? Or is that typical or not typical? Where are most of the world's cellulosic fibers produced? Yeah, I mean, there are different types of combinations possible. In the case of lensing, we recently had a uh, pulp facility being built in uh, one of the biggest in the world in Brazil. And there we are having a joint venture with another company. So we together have the eucalyptus plantations there. So you can go back to owning a forest 
and then a pulp facility and then a fiber facility, right? So you can kind of integrate the, the backward integration of this process. But it is not being done widely by every producer. I think to some extent, some of them have their own forests, their own pulp mills, but they all actually buy from other suppliers as well. For example, we also buy from other pulp suppliers, right? So it's possible to do in one business model, but the locations could be different, right? Mm -hmm. So um, in Austria, we have a facility which is making pulp and viscose lyocell modal in one facility or one location with different facilities, right? So it's possible to integrate um, but it's a it's a business model that uh, some are using, some are not using. But there are so many good advantages of integration uh, because you can, as I said, like you can directly put the pulp into fiber making process. Um, you don't need to transport and, and you don't need to dry it and make it into pulp sheets, right? So you can use it as a liquid. So you kind of uh, save the transport related energy and drying related energy. And then, yeah, there are synergies like that. But also the pulp, if you build it in a proper way, like the biorefinery we call, where mm-hmm. all the, the chemicals and that you have extracted from the pulping process can be used for making bioenergy, which can also power your fiber facilities to some extent. So you, you <laughs> this integration has those advantages. So you, you don't need to use fossil fuels like coal and natural gas for making fiber. So mm-hmm. um, these are the things that you can think of. And one other distinction we haven't looked at is the difference between viscose manufacturing and lyocell manufacturing, because lyocell is the one of the most sustainable fibers from the technology point of view, right? So, for example, as I explained to you in the case of viscose, there are several steps. In the case of lyocell, it's very simple. You take pulp and you will physically dissolve into a solvent and then you precipitate it. So there is a very number of, less number of steps. And that solvent is also more than 99.8% recovery possible in our case. And then we use it in the process again and again. It's a closed loop process. So you reuse a lot of water. Yeah, that's related then to your facility, right? Exactly. How do you design your facilities, right? Mm -hmm. And what type of energy sources you use? So the technology-wise, it has the potential to be closed loop, but are you doing it 99% or doing it 99.8 or 9%? So all these things also shape your sustainability profile. And also what type of energy you use? Do you use renewable energy or using fossil energy and those kind of things as well? I feel, Krishna, like we have just scratched the surface of your knowledge. But is there anything that you really want to talk or that you would like people to know that we haven't touched on? I think basically we have talked about different challenges of using alternative cellulose materials, right? The perennial crops and those kind of things. We haven't yet found a scalable way to get these materials in a sustainable way, right? So Mm -hmm. with the case of wood, we talked about, it's like we are recovering and using bioenergy to make it. But what happens when you use agricultural waste or something? So how do you filter these minerals out of it? What happens to the waste and the chemicals, energy? So I think people have conceptions like, oh, um, you can avoid using wood completely and then based on these other alternative materials you can do. What I believe is like, it is still possible to use alternative cellulose fibers like uh, using cotton textile waste, right? However, we need to design 
our garments in such a way that they can be easily recyclable, right? Whether it's chemicals, whether it's blending of the fibers, whether it's the finishing agent we use. So it's not just in the hands of only the fiber producer, it's also in the hands of the brands and retailers, how they design their garments. So this is something we need to keep in mind. And not only the technology itself, like Lyocell is a cleaner technology, but what type of energy you use and how closed loops your loops are, all those things also matter. So some people think like, oh, viscose is viscose. It should have the same impact wherever you buy. Actually, it's not true. Whether you are making viscose using fossil fuels or whether you have loops uh, or recovery loops, um, highly efficient. So all these things matter to define the, the footprint of a product. So those should be uh, paid attention if you really want to be a sustainability leader in the world of um, garments and textiles. If we wanted to truly improve the state of the world and the sustainability of the industry, we need to understand these interlinkages and interdependencies, like how one company designs a product uh, will impact how that material can be recycled at the end and made into new fibers, right? So I think these are the kind of interlinkages we have with the cellulose fiber producers, but also brands and retailers. And if you go back, even the chemical providers or chemical producers who are giving the bulk chemicals, commodity chemicals for us, they also need to improve their sustainability profile. So yeah, this is something we need to do together in a collaborative effort. We cannot assume by thinking that we formulate the targets and impacts and measures will happen somewhere else. I think it will only happen if everybody tries to pay attention to it and also willing to actually pay the price for it. Otherwise, we will not be able to improve the industry as such. As like somebody says, uh, I think it's an African proverb, if you wanted to go fast, go alone, if you wanted to go farther, go together, right? So that's the only thing we have to remind in our life um, to improve the state of the world and the industry. Oh, thank you, Krishna. I think that's the the perfect place to end. Um, And I'm so grateful. Thank you, Kim. Thanks for listening to Manufacture. I've been your host, Kim von der Weert, and if you learned something new from this episode and want to support the show, come say hi to me on LinkedIn or drop me an email on kim at manufacturedpodcast.com. And of course, subscribe, rate, and review us on the podcast app you're listening to this episode on. Take a look at the episode description for all the details and stay tuned for more.